Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 282, interview with Peter Lyon about his book, Merg, the true story of one World War II soldier's selfless act of valor that one town never forgot. Peter Lyon is a seven-time Emmy award-winning producer, director, and writer. His first book, American Saint Nick, is the true story of how a handful of American soldiers brought Christmas back to a small, war-torn town during the darkest days of World War II. And today, we will discuss his follow-up success, Merg. Mr. Lyon, thank you very much for being with us today. Ah, it's a Pleasure to talk to you, Ray. It's, uh, this is something I've been looking forward to for quite some time. I appreciate that. Now, before we jump into this, I just have to say, by the time I finished reading your book, and yes, there were some tears, um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the fact that it's a story about someone who is humble, who is giving, who is thinking about other people. And then you throw on the fact that he comes from a mega rich family, Hollywood good looks, can speak numerous languages. He has the best best of everything. The world is literally on a silver platter for him. And yet he spends most of his time thinking about other people. It's this feel good story right smack dab in the middle of World War II. You're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, let's extrapolate a little bit. It's almost like, you know, you look at the times we live in now and I, and I, I sometimes wonder, it would, would a George Mergenthaler, who, is, who you're talking about, would, you know, would that person ex- – does that person exist today? Right. And it's you – know, I, 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 str- I struggle with that because you're right. Here's a guy that – you know, I always say had it all. I mean, he yes. just, he had it all and, uh, you know, c- could have done anything with his life. And, you know, and, and as we, as we see in the book, we, we know how his life played out, but it's just one of these incredible stories of just selflessness. And it's just, it, I don't know, it's just, I, I think that's one of the things that really, as I started researching, it really kind of grabbed me. The more I got into it was was that you know again this guy could have done anything could you know even even the basics where he could have been an officer yes you know you know and he you know his father um, who had many connections in the government because again as you say very wealthy family heir to the uh, Mergenthaler fortune and and you know we can talk a little about that in a mm-hmm. moment but you know his father could have pulled all these strings to get him you know certainly a a, a commission if not you know a, a cushy desk side job or whatever and george you know at 23 years 24 years old didn't didn't want that he wanted to be just one of the regular guys and insisted on serving his time as as his buck private and that's what he was but even the guys he served with in his in his unit in the 28th cavalry uh, reconnaissance troop knew that he should have been, you know, 
an officer. In fact, right. you know, his captain used to always look to him for advice because <laughs> it was just he was just one of those guys that you know everybody knew he he should have attained higher rank, but just insisted on being one of the guys. And you just you know you just got to admire that. Yeah, I, I got the sense uh, I was like halfway through the book, and I got the sense that yeah, his his um his comrades are sitting next to him going, "Dude, what are you doing here?" But he was <laughs> he was so sincere that they could I think they could very quickly tell he wasn't playing a game. He was just trying to do his part. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he in part in his and in doing his part, um, he was also trying to uh, put some demons to rest, too, because, you know, mm. I mean, his last name was Mergenthaler. He was some German descent. And, mm. of course, you know, he still had relatives in Germany, distant relatives, but relatives in Germany during the war. Mm-hmm. So there was this there was this internal battle that that he waged. Um, you know, doing his part, but also like this guilty feeling of like, how could, you know, his ancestral people do this and, you know, and, and sort of, you know, be at the whim of a madman kind of thing. And it's, and, and so he, you know, and as I say in the book, his, his name sort of billboarded his heritage and he kind of carried that guilt around with him in a way. So it was, you know, there were, there was a bit of an internal struggle for him, you know, throughout, throughout his time in the war. That makes sense. Yeah, kind of trying to kind of out, undo kind of what Hitler was doing to, to do the people that he came from. So if we could jump into this, how did you come across the story of George Mergenthaler? Well, a uh, great question. Um, it actually, you know, I've known about this story for probably 20 years. Oh. And the way it came about was um, I had written a book called The American Saint Nick, also a true story, also set in World War II, also set in Luxembourg, which is where this story takes place. And I was talking with one of the main figures of that book, a man named Richard Brookins, who actually was the American Saint Nicholas. Right. And um and we were in Wiltz, Luxembourg, which is in the northern part of the country. And we were just chatting, and he said to me, did I ever tell you the story of George Mergenthaler? And I said, no. And he says, oh, well, do you want to know it? I said, sure. Okay. He goes, well, come on, let's go. I was like, you know, what do you mean, let's go? And he said, well, you know, let, let's, go to the, let's go to it. All right. So we jump into my rental car, and the town of Eschweiler, which is where – Basically, the story of, of, of Merg takes place is four miles away, just four miles north mm-hmm. of, of Viltz. So we're on our way to Eschweiler, and he says, okay, pull over. And there's a little road sign, roadside sign that points to this monument, and it says, you know, Mergenthaler um, uh, Memorial. Like, well, okay. And we go out, and we look at the, this, this stone monument, and he starts telling me what he knows of the story. And I'm like, oh, this, this, is, this is really interesting. Wow, okay. Right. And he says, okay, come on, let's, let, let's go to the church. And I'm like, all right, so we, we we drive you know another mile up the road and go to the you know the center of Eschweiler. Now this is a very small town mm-hmm. that you could easily drive right through, and not even though you've been in it, <laughs> except for the church, which sits at this elbow in the road, and it's it in itself is very unremarkable. It's you know very austere, just you know simple white walls, some stained glass windows, and a and a spire. And the interesting part about the spire is it rises from the back of the church over the altar versus over the, the sort of the, the organ where most yeah. spires, you know, in the front of the church. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit, a little bit of odd architecture, but okay. So you see that and you're like, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's a white walls, black roof, you know, big, thick oak doors. You're like, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely little church. And then you walk in 
And right, I have to say, I was gobsmacked as soon as I walked through the door Mm -hmm. and saw these—I mean, the magnificent colors, the glow uh, of the of these gorgeous stained glass windows. And as you walk in, the first thing that strikes you is you're in this glass vestibule, this glass enclosed vestibule, and there's a and there's a um, a plaster relief on the wall of George Bergenthaler, and and you get the sense, oh my gosh, now I understand the story, and you realize that this church is dedicated to this one soldier. And as far as you know, we know, it's the only church in the world right. dedicated to a single American soldier. And, uh, and I, I have to tell you, I was, as I walked through the church and I saw, you know, the, 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 again, the stained glass windows that are dedicated to his family and to the U.S. Army and to Luxembourg, and then the mural behind the altar, which I won't give it away, right. but, oh my gosh, it, that's what really hooked me in. And I'm like, this is a tremendous story. I have to, I have to know more about this. And that's really how it began. And so, again, that was like like some twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and at the time I was I was still um, in the midst of writing American Saint Nick, and I had finished that, and then you know it came to you know the, the promoting of that book and getting that word out there, and so sure. that kind of all was happening. And Merck took a bit of a back seat, but then I revisited it, and I just once once I started getting into the the writing and research of the story, I, I it, it just became more and more remarkable as I you know as I started writing it. And I, and I say that, and I'm saying that not because I wrote the book, but I wrote the book because it was such a remarkable story. It absolutely is. Yeah. And, and, and like you, I, I'm getting the sense we're just excited to get to the end because the very ending is, <laughs> it's like, you think the story's over. It's not. Then you think the story's over again, but it's not. So it goes on. But before we jump into that, um, could you give us, uh, before we jump into George proper, could you sure. give us an idea where he comes from a little bit about his family and, and um, you know, so we can set up the, the story of George properly. Oh, certainly. So, you know, to, 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 the, to understand the story of George Mergenthaler as told in Merg, you have to sort of go back in time, back through the midst of time, so to speak, and and revisit his grandfather. And his grandfather was Otmar Mergenthaler. Now, some people might know that na- that name. Mm-hmm. Most people probably don't. And what Otmar Mergenthaler was known for mm-hmm. was his invention of the linotype machine. Okay. Now, the linotype um, it was invented in the mid 1800s, um, 18, like 1874, 75 in that, in that area. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, prior to his invention, Otmar's invention of the linotype, there had not been an advance in the mass printing industry. And we mean like for newspapers and such mm-hmm. since the invention of the Gutenberg press. So we're talking <laughs> 400 years right? of, of people trying to like, <laughs> find a way to like get get copy written and get it you know published for like for newspapers and if you think about it you know back at the time and like you know we live in a much different age now with yeah. computers and you know instagram and all this kind of stuff so it's a much different time but back then the sole primary way of communicating news or anything for that matter was newspapers so publishers were eager were just were just you know trying desperately to find a way to to mass print newspapers at that time, the, there was no newspaper in the world that was more than eight pages long because they simply couldn't, you know, go get the news, gather the news, typeset it, yeah. edit it, print it, and distribute it 
in a timely manner had it been any longer. I mean, like eight pages was max. That's it. So, you know, these publishers understood the power of, of the press, you know, the power of newspaper mm-hmm. and the power of communication. And they knew that, you know, if we could if we could find a way to, to increase you know, this does both the time and the amount of, of news that we can get out there, it would be, you know, it would be a win overall. Right. But there was nothing. There was just, you know, people had made attempts and they failed. And and here comes Ottmar Mergenthaler, you know, this immigrant from Germany. He um, was was a bit of an you know an idiot savant when it came to <laughs> to, to mechanics because even even as a young child he had this this he showed this tremendous prowess for for all things mechanical and and one one of the things that made him very unique was he had the ability to look at a piece of equipment a machine mm-hmm. and just by looking at it and the parts involved could tell you why it worked why it didn't work what could be better about it um if if it could be improved upon or if it was just you know the design was nice but it was never going to function properly he just do by looking at it because he he had this way of envisioning all the parts of the machine as a whole so almost like if you've you've seen blueprints of machines you know Mm -hmm. like from the packed office or whatever he had a way of in his head being able to sort of break those all down and put them back together in his head and it was it was pure genius in that respect and in fact that was one of his first jobs when he came to this to this country. He was working for his 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 um, half cousin at his half cousin's machine shop, and it became obvious this guy had this tremendous drafting ability. And at that time, the industrial age, um, the 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 seat of invention for patenting was in Baltimore, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right outside Washington. Right. So, like anybody that had an idea for a machine had to get it patented, and in, in order to get it patented, you needed uh, drafts, design drafts, and Otmar had this incredible ability to, again, break down a machine and, and, and draw out the, the drafts for these for all these machines. And um, it was in that in that vein that this one guy comes up to him with this sort of typewriter ma- machine that he, this guy James Selfane, had hoped would would be the 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 revolutionary machine to you know for the printing industry and 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 otmar looked at it and you know the guy left it with otmar for a few days and otmar you know said okay i can i can make this machine work better but it will never do what you want it to do Mm -hmm. and of course this guy's this guy was a bit heartbroken like well what do you mean because this is this is my baby but otmar says but seeing what you've done i can take this the next step and make it better and now this is this guy Selfane is is intrigued, and that's how he starts. Otmar does along the line of inventing the linotype, uh, and when he finally does it, you know he's now by this time he's got you know the investors and all this kind of thing. He and he and he's just toils uh, endlessly. I mean he's just such a dedicated and a worker. I mean this was his uh, his, his his whole reason for living was the, the, the invention of this machine, mm-hmm. and uh, he's just a tireless worker. An inventor, and he, and he finally invents his machine, and he debuts it in the New York Tribune newspaper um, um, printing uh, uh, room in front of uh, Whitelaw Reed, who was the the, the publisher of the, at the time. And he sits down, and, and Otmar types some stuff in, and and through his machine process, which is detailed in the book, out pops this line of type. Uh. In fact, I think it was. Well, uh, Reed, who actually said, oh, my God, Otmar, you've done it. It's a line of type. And that name stuck the linotype. Right. And so the machine then was, you know, 
the manufacturing and distribution and every newspaper in the world wanted it. And of course, it, you know, it exploded on the publishing industry, not only newspapers, but books as well. And it made Otmar famous beyond words and it made his family wealthy beyond all imagination. Wow. And it's, and, but what I, but what I always caution here is that <laughs> this was a family, the Mergenthalers, thanks to Otmar, who were blessed with prosperity yet cursed by tragedy. And we see that play out again and again and again in this poor family's, you know, uh, journey. And that it starts with Otmar and, you know, he, for all his success and all his, his brilliance, he died at the age of 45 from tuberculosis and he he died in 1899. And at the time of his death in 1899, the family fortune was valued at $43 million. Now, you think about that in in, in terms of that time, you know, right, a century right. ago. Oh, my God. So the, the family was, was, again, wealthy beyond words. So that's kind of where George, you know, I mean, obviously he comes into play because he's Otmar's grandson, uh, but George isn't born until 1920. So, the, you know, there's a whole 20 years goes by. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the family business is thriving and growing and building and, you know, they're, they're, the, the money's flowing in. And by the time, and again, this is all detailed in the book because Otmar had uh, four sons and a daughter. But by the time George is born in 1920, right. he is then the sole male heir to this fortune. And, and the, and the, in the book we describe how all that comes about. And again, it's, there's some very tragic, right. um, events that happen and it's well detailed, but that's how George ends up being. Again, this, this, this guy who you know, was, was wealthy beyond words, but so humbled about it. Like nobody really knew. He didn't tell anybody. Right. He just, nobody really knew about it. And yes, he was also blessed with movie star good looks and he was Ivy League educated and, you know, he spoke German and French and it was just, he was just wow. a very generous and, you know, and, 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 wonderful guy. He was just a really nice guy that everybody liked. That, that, that is absolutely incredible. And again, yeah, that he just doesn't make a big deal, deal of, and he just goes about his life. So every, mm-hmm. Everything is relatively humming along, but mm-hmm. then Pearl Harbor comes along, and again, George's reaction to this, to me, was just absolutely staggering. Yes, true, and you know, at that time, you know, prior to to, to the to the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, again, we have to sort of cast ourselves back to that to that to that moment in history where America was 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 not. You know, they didn't want to get involved in a war. And there's there is a, a huge anti-war, mm-hmm. you know, isolationist movement, uh, uh, you know, throughout the country, and um, and in fact, um, George's class of 1939 and the following class of 1940 at Princeton University, they had voted um, Adolf Hitler as the most interesting, you know, person in the world even over Albert Einstein, who was on the faculty of Princeton University. <laughs> um, and, and the reason, and, and the reason right. behind that wasn't that they really believed it, but it was more just a sort of a statement vote to say, we don't want to get involved in any of this, you know? Right. So like, we're not, we're not like, inciting anything. And so there was, there was that incredible movement at the time that, you know, uh, America didn't want to get involved. Mm-hmm. 
And um, um, prior to this, however, you know, uh, Roosevelt had initiated the Lend-Lease Act with uh, England, right. uh, because, again, at this point, uh, pretty much all of Europe is is under the thumb of, of, of Nazi rule, and, and, you know, Hitler had trained his sights on Great Britain and the Battle of Britain and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, just even the, the basic raw materials were were, were sort of depleted in, in England at the time. So Roosevelt steps in and says, "We're going to do the Lend-Lease Act." And starts, you know, basically giving them all this these these um, you know this war material, you know, mm-hmm. every, everything they could possibly need to like you know, stave off you know a German invasion. But aside from that, that's it. Nobody, America didn't want to enter the war. Yeah. Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, December seventh. We know. Uh, the day that lives in infamy, and 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 George, like so many of his generation, like want to do their part. They just they they just wanted to do their part, and immediately they go and he you know he enlists in the army against his father's best wishes. Nice. Um, his father is very upset about this, but he but he, again he wants to do his part because you know he just he's, he sees what's he was a student of history, mm-hmm. uh, and and saw what had happened during the First World War. And it was very, you know, obviously knew what was happening in Europe at that time. And again, he still had relatives there. And, you know, he sees, you know, what Germany is doing. And so he's he's probably, you know, more than most of his friends at the time was very engaged and involved in what was happening. So as soon as the, you know, the war is declared, he, he, you know, runs off and enlists. Um, But his enlistment is deferred until he graduates. Now, he... Does graduate in 1943, but on an accelerated program mm-hmm. uh, because you know at this at this time the army needs all the men they can get, and so they're you know they're they're they're, they're taking anybody. But his, because he was in school at the time, it was it was deferred until 1943. He goes into this enlist uh, this accelerated program, and in 1943 graduates in January, and literally days later is is on his way to Camp Hood in Texas. Remember, at that time it was Camp Hood, not Fort Hood, right. and um, and he's on his way to Texas, and that's where he goes in for basic training. But I just have to, and again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but one, the family's wealthy. Two, it's very well connected. Three, he's got an education. Four, he can speak languages. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and for him to, to kind of shun all that, nope, nope, I just want to fight in the Army. I want to be a private. Mm-hmm. I just want to be a cog in the machine. Right, and 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 he did, and he just wanted to be one of the guys. And in fact, when he was down in Camp Hood, they had this this special program. It's called it was called the Star Program, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it was a, this special training. And what, what basically it was is that they had certain the, the army had need for certain non commissioned uh, men who. Uh, were were trained with in medicine languages. It's you know, and there were very specific, very specific areas, and it was called the Star Program. And uh, sort of as a way of appeasing his father, mm-hmm. um, George said, "Okay, I'll I'll look at you know getting involved in one of these star programs." Now, it was that you had to you had to enroll in it, you had to be interviewed, you had to pass an exam, and all this kind of stuff uh, to even be considered for this thing. And oddly enough, what they did is all these all these uh, um, men who qualified for the star program were then sent to certain universities who were uh, that were that were um, uh, aiding in the war effort in in, the, in this special training program of which Princeton was one of them. So <laughs> right. it was just, you know, it was interesting. He probably would have ended up going back to Princeton. However, mm-hmm. he enlists and in his interview, they find out that he speaks fluent German and French and they're like, Oh, hang on a second. Right. No, 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 no. You're not going into the star program. <laughs> we need, we need guys like you and recon. Right. you know, that's what we need. So he gets assigned 
um, to a recon troop. Now, interestingly, he went and volunteered down in Camp Hood. He wanted to be part of the Tank Destroyer Division, which was this newly created division uh, by the Army because they were looking, um, even prior to their entrance into the war, they were trying to uh, come up with a, a way of stopping the German armor uh, advance through Europe. Because German armor, I mean, they in fairness to the Germans, their battle strategy with using uh, armored divisions was was incredible, right. and they used it very effectively. And and as we see, like very, nobody could stop them. So the the U.S. Army was looking at a way of of, of countering that because you know the, if if by some chance that the U.S. was drawn into war, which obviously they were, they needed to be ready to go with something to counter that that German armor mm-hmm. uh, attack. Right. So they were. They had um, created the, these these divi- this um, tank destroyer division, and George had volunteered for that. But George is also very tall, right? <laughs> so um, mm, yeah. it, it, it was sort of one of those things where uh, it's going to be a tight fit in these in these tank destroyer uh, vehicles, <laughs> right? But when they found out that he spoke German and French, it was like, all right, no, no, we, we got you. You're going on a recon thing. But again, he insisted on on being a buck private. You know, he yeah. insisted on serving his time as a private, right. even though you know he was, you know, again, he spoke the, he was Ivy League graduated, spoke this this fluent German, et cetera, et cetera. So he gets assigned to this the 28th Cavalry Recon Troop, a mechanized uh, recon troop. Mm-hmm. They weren't on horses anymore, and um, they are then attached to the 28th Infantry Division, okay. and so they end up going with this division and, and and training and doing all these things right alongside the rest of the division, and that's and that's kind of where where he sort of launches into the war at that point. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. That's incredible. So he's just saying, no, I just want to do my part. That That's that's amazing. So he goes through his training, and you can certainly touch on that if you want, but because of the way things worked out with having to finish school and do his training, he's not quite ready to go over when D-Day comes. He, he's going he's gonna to go over, if I remember, a little later after that. Well, what, what happened was that, the again, being attached to the 28th Infantry Division, mm-hmm. uh, the, the recon troop trained with them, but... Being a recon troop, they also had to be prepared besides just um, the normal infantry for certain other uh, types of engagements, uh, uh, close quarter engagements, small arms engagements, uh, uh, town, you know, um, building to building, uh, uh, in town fighting, that kind of thing. So they also uh, uh, were, were given specialized training aside from just your, your basic infantrymen. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they were attached to the 20th. But when the 28th Infantry Division shipped out of Boston, um, I think it was in October of 43, I believe it was. Uh, don't hold me to that one. Right. I think it was October of 43. Um, they ship out uh, from Boston, and they end up in, in Wales to train for additional uh, overseas training in Wales um, to prepare for the invasion. Now, at the time, you know, everybody knew that the, there was going to be an invasion. People knew it, um, and there. And as we've seen through uh, various historical accounts, um, there was so much deception as to where was it going to happen and who was going to be involved, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of it was very hush hush. So, all the all these divisions went through the 
kind of the same, you know, of amphibious assault training. And the 28th Infantry Division was no different. They were training in Wales, um, in, 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 in for the for the recon troop. They were in a, in a town called Saint Clair's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so they were kind of spread out all throughout the, the Wales, and um, when they were there for probably like six or seven months, just constantly training. An interesting uh, quick sidebar here, because the Twenty Eighth Infantry Division was actually the Pennsylvania National Guard, mm-hmm. and that's you know that was the, where how they you know came to be. Um, many of the 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 soldiers in the troop were from the Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio region. Which is all mining, you know, you know right. steel mining country, right? Because that's 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 what was going on at the time. Well, in Wales, coal mining was the thing. So a lot of the, a lot of the the Welsh uh, people had emigrated years ago to the U.S. and ended up right. in places like Pennsylvania, <laughs> West Virginia, right. Ohio. So for so the people in Wales, when the Twenty Eighth Infantry Division like were, you know, basically assigned to them, and they were over, you know, the, the towns were overrun by these GIs. Um, more so than, than probably a lot of places, the, the Welsh people really uh, uh, sort of embraced the men of the 28th because they're like, hey, the, you know, these are our people. Yes. I mean, the, you know, some yeah. of these guys were like some of the, the guys in 28th actually had relatives in Wales. Wow. And so it was it was interesting. Like they more so than any other uh, troops that ended up training there, the, the Welsh people really embraced the 28th. And when we see that uh, accounted in the book a couple of times, too. But George is over there training with the rest of the division. And come like May of 1944, they get word now they're going to go to uh, to England to marshal for the invasion. Mm-hmm. Again, it's all hush-hush secret. Nobody really knows where and what divisions are going and all this kind of stuff. And sure enough, come, come you know, D-Day, come, you know, June 6, 1944, the 28th is not involved in the initial assault. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're held in reserve because, you know— I think I think you know we sometimes through the prism uh, of time look back and say oh you know the D Day oh my gosh it was you know what a, what a tremendous uh, invasion and mm-hmm. largest amphibious assault at the time and and, uh, and and what a success it was but you know right up to the to the time it was happening you know Eisenhower didn't know if it was going to work right. you know they didn't know yeah. so I mean you know a lot of a lot of um, the troops were held in reserve just in case. And so um, the 28th was one of those troops, one of those divisions that was held in reserve. So they didn't actually, the whole division didn't actually go into uh, the European theater until a month later, until until mid-July. Mm. And of course, George, being part of that recon troop, was with the 28th. And so they went in in mid-July, and that was the first time they, they, they set foot in, in European soil. And they were and by this time, of course, the you know the the, the allies had established a beach uh, a foothold and a, and a beachhead and everything, and so um, they immediately go in and they're confronted with the uh, the hedgerow country of France mm-hmm. and fighting like you know and at that at that stage the early stages here in July the fighting was you know for yards of, of ground versus you know miles of ground so they were just mm-hmm. struggling to get through this just horrible hedgerow country and and and. Interestingly, that they were not really prepared for that kind of a fight. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they went through all this type of training, um, this bit of, of reconnaissance from aerial reconnaissance and such had not prepared them for the tight quarters and tightness uh, of these thick, just almost impenetrable hedgerows. And so they had to, on the spot, you know, r- sort of rethink their whole strategy in in in, in fighting through this 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 country. For instance. Um, 
the and, and I was funny because I talked to uh, several veterans of this of the of the recon troop, 28th Cavalry Recon Troop, mm-hmm. and and they and they also said the same thing is like a lot of times what you would do is you would go and you would you know the way you their their job their main focus wasn't so much to engage the enemy, yeah. but it was more to more to just just find out where the enemy was, report back to headquarters, and then based on what their information was, they the 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 uh, commanders would then sort of uh, re- reconfigure their battle plans based on again you know what, what information was coming back from the front from the uh, from band scouts. Well, what happened was they you know the, the way sometimes especially in the in the Bokaj, uh, regions of the Hedgerow country, <laughs> the only way they could um, uh, find out where the enemy positions were. Or by was by going in and waiting till they started shooting at you. And that's it. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and it's that like works. So, well, yeah, and it's like you know, I mean, it's 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 it's, it's very hazardous. But literally, they're driving along, and as soon as the, the enemy opens up, they'd stop, pull back, and they then they'd radio in and say, "Okay, there, here's your here's your map coordinates. It's a grid section, and here's right. where here's where they are." And then they, they would do that. But the Germans started getting wise to that. So th- what they would end up doing was they would allow the recon troop, the advance oh. scouts, to, to pass right by. Right. And wait for the larger column of infantry to come by. So it was, it was really very much a chess match going on there. And so it was very, just very. Uh, and I know I'm getting bogged down in the details here, but it's a, it's important to understand oh, yeah. all all of this as we move forward in the story because it sort of it, it, it explains how this this division, this entire division, and the recon troop becomes so battled hardened so quickly yeah so it's a good thing they had all that training even though they do have to change things up like you said the the germans are far from beaten or broken at this point so they certainly have to uh to uh keep fighting in order one to keep moving forward but two to survive so they so they have their action they see action uh but i if i remember the 28th group uh the recon group does pretty well as far as if I'm remembering correctly, as far as not sustaining too many casualties before they end up in a small town in Luxembourg. Yeah, they, I mean, you know, they were um, lucky, Mm -hmm. uh, if you can use the term, like they, of course they did, they did sustain, you know, some losses, but it wasn't, you know, if you think, if you think about literally the front, you know, the, the point scouts and, and, and the dangers they encounter, they, they actually didn't encounter too, too much, um, too many casualties. They were in the the Hurricane Forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Battle of the Hurricane Forest was just this horrific, horrific battle. Um, and and it, it it started in really in late September, nineteen forty four, and by November. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which is when the 28th Infantry Division was committed to this battle, and that included the the recon troop. Recon troop. Um, they went in in like the first couple of weeks of November. Now, if you, know, if you think about it, the there's like a 50 square mile patch of of forest right. on the German Belgian border that the Americans. This is strictly an American fight, by the way. That the American uh, commander thought they needed to capture because they were afraid of the Germans um, blowing up the dams on the uh, the uh, on the the Roar River Valley and flooding the valley. Right. And they were they were thinking that if that happened, that would delay the the uh, entrance into Germany and, and just create more create more uh, logistical problems. So this uh, this this um, battle, this hurricane force battle, and, and and the troops that were committed, they were sort of on the on the flank of this to make sure that like they could uh, control this area, and also they, the American high command uh, considered the hurricane forest uh, a staging area for the Germans. They were they were trying to prevent the Germans from using this to to assemble troops to mm. to 
perhaps counterattack advancing American troops on the flank. So right. this this was so this was sort of the 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 role of the of this um, of this army to to go in on, on the on the flanking side and to and to take this forest. Uh, beginning of November the twenty eighth is entered into this Hurtin Forest battle and and Ray I have to tell you it was devastating. I mean the you know if you think about the you know, troop strength. Mm-hmm. And they're of a division, and there's there's like nine thousand, ten thousand guys in a division. That by in, in just two weeks fighting time, two thirds of the division uh, became casualties of this one battle. So six thousand guys right. were casualties of this one battle. You know, uh, wounded or dead. So it was just the twenty eighth was just decimated in this and they and again they were two weeks in there and what was happening is they just the uh, the uh, US Army was just rotating in these these different these different divisions. So the twenty eighth came in to relieve the ninth division mm-hmm. and and so and so um, it, it was it was horrible. Um, the the recon troop, what their assignment was, is they were up on a, on a ridge overlooking one of the the dams on the on the uh, Call River and uh, again, it was the, the the fear was that the Germans might blow the dam and et cetera, et cetera. And they were also there to 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 you know be a, a conduit of communication between a, a couple of different um, um, uh, regiments at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were also there to direct artillery fire. So they were not necessarily in the front line fighting, but at, at, at one point, the artillery shells were falling so fast and so frequently that, as, as the veterans told me, they weren't sure if they were German or American shells coming down. They just didn't know. Oh, and, right. and this was constant. And even just to get to that, to their position, the roads were heavily mined. All the, all the, um, the, I should say the roads, the paths, because there really were no roads. What mm-hmm. roads there were, were were thick with mud. So there was no vehicles, there's no armor support or anything like that. And the weather conditions were terrible. So there was no uh, uh, air support. Right. from the Army Air Corps. So really, this was an infantryman's battle. I mean, this was like all infantry. And and so luckily, you know, and I, I say that word, you know, right. some, yeah, I mean, if, right. if you want to call it luck, the recon troop, all you know, although they were part of this battle, were in a position where they were um, enough removed from the frontline fighting that really what they had to worry about was, was you know, mines and, and artillery, and that's the kind of thing. So for two weeks, they sat there in forward positions, being, you know, the eyes and ears of the artillery. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until kind of uh, as they were getting ready to leave that they that they sustained their first casualties in that battle. Mm-hmm. And it happened, and it happened because the, um, it, you know, it was so pitch black at night that the, and, and they had, um, over, uh, they had um, taken control of these these pillboxes that the Germans had built uh, in, while they controlled the area. Right. But the only way to to access these was for, for, from this road that you couldn't really see. So the protocol was for the, the guys who were holding these these pillboxes to walk down the road and to meet the oncoming replacements and uh. then guide guide them up to the to the pillboxes. Right. And when doing so, one of the vehicles uh, ran over a, a mine. That was that happened to be on this on this, this small narrow road, and that's and the 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 it was uh, an M8 Greyhound that ran over this mine, and, and the Greyhounds were these scout vehicles, which had very thin armor plating on the bottom, and they were no match for the German mines, uh. and so. That's that's when they you know basically had their first real casualties uh, of that particular battle, right. um, and that was when they were being rotated out and they were being sent to the rear 
for R and R, and you know, again to sort of regroup, resupply, and to, to get more men. Right. And that was the entire division was sent west uh, into Luxembourg for R and R, and they ended up the recon troop did being sent to this small little farming town called Eschweiler, and that's where the recon troop was. That's incredible. Now, before we move on, because I, I and, I, and I'm trying to remember from your book, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So you've got these six thousand casualties, but the great irony was, if I remember correctly, the Germans weren't going to do what the Americans thought they were going to do, which is why they launched attack after attack when it came to the dams. Is that correct? you're absolutely right? You're absolutely right. In fact, it was. It, it turned out, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, of course, but it turned out mm-hmm. to be one of. Uh, a battle that was completely unnecessary because the Germans had no intention of doing of flooding the River Valley or anything like that, and right. um, and yeah, maybe they were thinking of the, yes, they could use the the forest as a way of of, of you know gathering troops, but the Germans and we found out you know after the war from veterans who fought there couldn't understand why the the Americans kept attacking there because it was like that was not their main focus. Yeah. They, they, that was strictly part of the Siegfried line, and they were, the Germans were just there to defend it. They were not. It, there was no real plan for them to do anything but that. So yeah. it really confused them as to why the, the American soldiers were were, were were constantly attacking, 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 um, and, and and sustaining such heavy casualties. As a result, I mean, don't forget that the, the because it was this this sort of steep ravine valley in the Hurricane Forest and everything, the Germans controlled all the high ground. So yes. the Americans. Uh, uh, along with all the other obstacles that they were fighting, like you know, the entire uh, area being pre-sighted for for mortars and artillery and and, and you know spools of barbed wire and mines and yeah. all this other stuff, they were fighting an uphill battle you know, into you know heavily machine gun territory. So it was just it was just just the worst possible conditions for a battle you could ever have. And again, it, it was so devastating that the Germans nicknamed the 28th Infantry the, the Bloody Bucket Division because of their shoulder patch with red uh, keystone of Pennsylvania, which is looked to the Germans like buckets of blood. Oh. And it was just they, – they sort of gave them that nickname just because it was – the, the losses were just such so incredible. It was uh, absolutely, again, absolutely mind-boggling. And you're absolutely right. As it turns out, was a completely unnecessary battle in, in the in the long run. Yeah, as we find out, wars hardly ever go the way they're planned. You make your plans, the war starts, right. and then you ad lib from then on out. So the twenty eighth, very fluid, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So the twenty eighth reconnaissance group is there in Eschweiler. They got some downtime, and like you were saying before, this is not a very big place. And I can't. I mean, I I just picture when I was getting to this part of your book, I just imagine the people there, they've been through what, four or whatever years of German occupation. Now these American troops are coming. I wonder if there was some intrepidation as they see these GIs pulling up. Cause to them, they're just more guys in uniform. Um, they couldn't have been happier. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 you know, and this is, this is detailed in the book as well. The, 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 the struggles that the Luxembourg people suffered under Nazi rule mm. and, and it, it was truly a horribly oppressive uh, time. Again, almost five years of Nazi rule. Right. Uh, and, and they, you know, and the, the Luxembourg people, you have to remember the Germans looked at uh, Luxembourg, 
Luxembourg as part of Germany, and they right. and they considered oh they were annexing them and they were welcoming them back to the fatherland and the Luxembourg people are very proud people and they were like no that's no we're Luxembourgers and, and very proud of it and so they resisted as much as they could but again it was such a a, a terrible terrible time for for the people there and 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 they couldn't and they were liberated on September 10th 1944 mm-hmm. and they could not have been happier to see the the US soldiers come in and they welcomed them with open arms and and um and yeah they were liberators they were right. they were they were happy to see them there so when the 28th recon troop came in on November I believe it was November 16th 1944 to to Eschweiler they were welcomed by the people of the town in fact you know for the next month the people in Eschweiler, you know, shared their homes again. Not that they had any choice. And don't get me wrong, right. because you know the military comes in and they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna you know set up guys in this house and that house and you know and, and here and there, because they need places to bivouac these guys. Um, and so you know the, the the people in the town had to share their homes, but also, you know, they they sh- the, both the Luxembourg people in Eschweiler and the Americans shared their meals and sh- their downtime, and they became very friendly mm-hmm. with the people in Eschweiler and George in particular, because he could speak German, which everybody in Luxembourg was, was spoke, and French, which many people in, in Luxembourg speak, he was uh, able more than anybody else in that troop to communicate with everybody. And so uh, they, the people in, in Eschweiler, sort of in a way, adopted George as like one of their own. I mean, they, they, they right. really they really embraced him as being like one of their own, and so much so that um, the the local priest, uh, his name is Father Bodson, offered George a room at the at the parsonage. Uh, they mm-hmm. had a spare room at the parsonage, and and you know George was very religious. Very, it was a Catholic, very religious, and you know attended mass every day, and was. You know, more than happy to take the the priest up on the offer, with the condition. <laughs> again, this just goes to show the, the 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 spirit of George Bergenthaler, with the condition that if he if there was also room for his best friend Cletus oh. and Cletus Lafond, and so uh, the the priest said, yes, it's a small room, but there's there should be enough room for the both of you, and so um, he says, great. Right, we'll tell you. So he, he, George, and his best friend Cletus end up staying at the parsonage for a couple of weeks during this during this time of R and R. And it was it really again, it was a, a case of the people at Eschweiler opening their hearts and their and their, and their homes and their hearts to um, to the to the soldiers because they looked at the soldiers as liberators. And in this particular recon troop, they really endeared themselves to to the people of Eschweiler in the in the in the month that they stayed there, and you know they would help with the chores around the town. Wow. And again, this, this is a very uh, small town, but it's it's a it's a farming village, is what it was, mm-hmm. you know, dairy farms and things like that. So, um, and the and you know again, as it's detailed in the book, there weren't a lot of men around at the time because of okay. the German occupation. Yeah. Because um, any any you know male of of military age was either you know forced to, to serve in the German army or had gone into hiding or if they refused both were end up at some labor camp or or worse yeah and so the, the like the men weren't really around they were just like you know young boys and teenage boys at the time so you know when it came to like you know chop wood or whatever the the GIs were more than happy to lend a hand and you know and, and sort of like you know in a way it was also for the GIs it was sort of a break from the war you know yes they 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 still had their their daily assignments of of reconnaissance and mm-hmm. and you know and and guard duty at night and things like that cuz don't forget that they weren't that far removed from the front line fighting right but right. um but it was nowhere but nowhere near the, the, the as as bad as it was in the Hurricane Forest 
so it was this was easy this was downtime and so um when they weren't during doing those you know daily army duties they were they were either hanging out or helping the people in town and 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 they loved it because it was a, a, a sort of a sense of, of normalcy in this otherwise you know the chaos of war support for this podcast comes from stella artois this summer enjoy the life artois you can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin all it takes is being present being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Right. And I, I have to say real quick that this was one of the my favorite parts of the book because here's George and here's the rest of the 20th Reconnaissance Group. I think it's around 60 men. I, I think that number is close. Yep. But, yep. but George's hundreds, or excuse me, George's millions of dollars doesn't matter. His Ivy League education doesn't matter because he's in this place. They have no idea who he is, but he comes in. He's nice. He's helpful. He's humble. He speaks the language. He's getting along with the priests. And no matter your opinion or attitude about faith, this guy truly was a believer. And I, and I think that came across and he just impressed them with the quality of person that he was versus the riches that he had access to, and he was the sole um, heir. Uh, I just think that the quality of who he was just impressed these simple farming people, and they, like you said, they took to him and they adopted him. No, you could, nailed it. You just, you absolutely nailed it. Um, the only, really, the only person who knew uh, that he was came from wealth was his best friend Cletus. And I don't even think Cletus knew. Really knew. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really knew. The, the, the depth How and many breadth millions? of his, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Cletus knew, but Cletus knew. You know, George had shared you know a lot of his story with him, right. his family history as well. But the rest of the and the rest of the recon troop, only thing they really knew was that you know George came from money. That's right. it. That's all they knew. Uh, they knew, knew yeah. he, they knew he was Ivy League educated, right? And that was it. And the, you know, and if you go back to the step back in time to the to, to their training in Wales. Um, he, George, was actually tapped to teach German, like simple phrases and things like that, that the, the army thought uh, officers would need as they uh. as they went into you know went into the um, after the invasion. He was he was tapped to teach courses <laughs> to teach uh, classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Code Mansion, which is uh, just outside of St. Clair's, where they were where they were um, uh, stationed, and and you know so, so everybody knew this guy was, was was smart and all this kind of stuff. But he knew, but he was very humble about it. He would just do what he was asked, and you know that was it. It was not was not a big thing. And he was, as you say, uh, uh, by the by the time they get to Eschweiler. Um, the guys in the troop just, you know, he was just one of the guys. It was no big deal. Right. And people in the town, they, they embraced George because yes, he could communicate with him, but he was just so charismatic, such a nice guy, shared everything that you know, he had. Yes. He kept getting these, these care packages from home. And, and, in, and in fairness, he would often write home and ask, you know, his, his, his mom and dad to send him certain things that he knew the people in, in Luxembourg and, and other people that they, he is encountered along the way right. through France and Belgium, et cetera. Right. Uh, he knew what they were lacking, what, you know, the things they didn't have. And so he was always asking his parents, send this, send this, send this. And his father, through his connections, was always able to sort of fast-track delivery of things. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you know, like, for instance, come, you know, one of the big events that, that happens at that time in Luxembourg is, is the celebration of St. Nicholas Day. Mm-hmm. And 
and and it, it happens just after Thanksgiving. So the the actual day is December sixth, and George, uh, like the rest of the the troop, find out that you know, because of the Nazi occupation, the people in Luxembourg weren't able to celebrate Saint Nicholas Day because oh. it was a holiday that was forbidden for them to celebrate because right. it was not a sanctioned German holiday. God only knows why, but it wasn't. So they were not able to celebrate it. And Saint Nicholas Day, as opposed to Christmas. Uh, is, is sort of a town-wide event versus Christmas, which is more family. Yeah. So, yeah. He, you know, here after nearly five years of, of Nazi occupation, they are able to celebrate St. Nicholas Day, but because of the ravages of war, they didn't really have anything to celebrate with. And George was like, oh, no, we can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. So he asks anybody who's got like a three-day pass to Clairvaux or to Paris, whatever, he basically sends them out with a shopping list and and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and money and says, you know, buy things. Buy, and, and so they come back with, you know, stuff. And he's he's writing his folks, you know, send things like this. So come St. Nicholas Day, he wanted to make sure that, especially for the children, they all had something to, right. you know, to, to celebrate the holiday with. So again, he was just, a, 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 an, I, I can't say this enough and I don't want to bore everybody, but he really was just an incredibly generous person, yeah. generous of spirit, generous in, 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 in his manner. And it just, that's just who he was. And, and, you know, yes, he had money, but that allowed him to, to, you know, again, help those who really didn't have anything. And, and, and his gestures, you know, some of them weren't that big. Like he, one of the, um, the guys he, he knew in town or befriended in town, uh, believe it or not, one of the, the, the things that were hard to come by were really Razor blades. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they just didn't. They just didn't have any. So he goes and he goes to the to the to the quartermaster and makes a deal to get razor blades, and he and he gets and he gets you know razor blades for for, the, for his, this guy. It was just little simple things like that. Right. Um, he knew that the priest. Uh, had taken up photography like he was he uh, b- before the war started and because of the war he didn't have any film so he makes a, another deal with somebody in the uh, in the uh, in the signal court to get some film for this for the priest camera so he's just wow. he just think you know he was just so selfless in his thinking like it wasn't like uh, oh um uh somebody would say something and he would just let it go he would he would think of like okay how can i help that how can i how can i do something for that oh wow you know that um, and so it's just he was just that kind of a, a spirit, just a, just a very caring, generous soul. And and uh, you know, I as I wrote the book, and this sounds really weird, but I think uh, you'll know what I mean. I, as the more I got to know George mm-hmm. through through people I've talked to, through you know uh, all the documentation I have, that. It, he was just such an incredible soul, and it was just you know. And it's, I say that I don't say this lightly. It's a pleasure knowing him. So there right. you go. Well, that's what makes the uh, the end so much more poignant, and it makes you want to be a better person yourself. And before we go on, I do have to say real quick: when I went to your website, um, mm-hmm. I looked. And you can see at the top of the website, you can see the little short film about Saint Nick coming in on the back of the jeep. You know about your other book, American right. Saint Nick. Right. Um, you could just see the kids standing around going this is wonderful, but it's been so crappy for the last four or five years. I don't know if I should show joy. You just see the mixed emotions on their face. They're like, yay, but I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be happy. <laughs> right. So I, that was, that, that's what that reminded me of. I'm, it's like when these little, when he starts doing these little things for people, it's like, it reminds them that civilization is coming back to your village. And that, that was just very, I just, I just enjoyed that part a lot. 
No, you're absolutely right, and that's and that's and that's part, was part of it too. Is like he he and the rest of the these soldiers were able to you know remind everybody that humanity was still there. I mean, this was these were you know these were people. You know, they, this, this wasn't they weren't just like you know the vanquished or they weren't like you know just I'll just ta- they were they were people and, yeah. and they knew that and they and I think as much as the town of Eschweiler embraced these soldiers, the soldiers also um, became friendly with them. I mean, again, they were there living amongst these people for for a month. Yeah. straight and uh and you know they, they they there was a bond there that that um as we as we know exists to this day yeah that is incredible so the 28th recon group is there they're there for a month they do develop this bond which of course has many different parts to it like you said but then the pleasantness has to or it does come to an end Right, and in the in the in the harshest of ways, uh, December sixteenth, literally a month, you know, from when they arrived, wow. the Battle of the Bulge is erupts, and you know it's the, it's the, the German surprise attack through the Ardennes, and Eschweiler and Luxembourg is I mean they're at the the the, the, the forefront of it. They are the Ardennes, so this is where they're, the Germans are are crashing through mm-hmm. the porous. American lines and the poorest lines are there because who's defending like who's on the front line defending this but the 28th infantry division that has just been decimated in this battle and in you know in some in some areas of of this line don't forget this was sort of like I I think it was a, a 50 mile front that they were trying to protect mm-hmm. or, or, or at least, you know, were defending on guard, whatever you want to call it, um, that, that they were spread so thin that literally there were, there were parts that the Germans could come right through and, and there was no resistance at all. Um, and the Germans knew this and they took advantage of that and they poured through these, these thinly defended lines and it allowed the, the battle of the boats to begin. The 28th in fairness, put up a, a, a tenacious fight Right. Uh, to defend and to, to hold them back as much as they could, and 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 certainly in the in the northern shoulder, they 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 were able to do that to some degree. But in the in the southern end of the line, it, it, the Germans came right through, and that's where we that's where we get that bulge from, because of course the the bulge was named after you know the the the, the, the bulge in the lines that pushed all the way you know into into Belgium, and you know mm-hmm. we know stone and everything interestingly enough the orders at um, as the battle was raging you know for one or two days. The orders came for the 28th to pull back, and they were told to pull back to Bastogne. <laughs> you know, that's right. you know, if you think, and, and you know, for all we know now, it's like, oh wow, you know, of, of all the things, of all the places they could have, you know, gone back to, they were told to go to Bastogne. They never got there because as as they were falling back, the Germans were advancing to the point where they said, we got to keep going, and they kept falling back further and further and further. Yes. Um, but um, what ends up happening in this particular town of Eschweiler is that um, the Germans are, are are advancing, advancing, advancing. And the town by the by December eighteenth is pretty much surrounded. They're surrounded mm. on three sides by the advancing Germans, and you know, and again, the sixty the sixty guys in the recon troop are doing their best to hold off the advancing Germans as much as they can. Um, that what what helped them, I think, was a the weather had turned uh, pretty pretty um, it was starting to be to turn nasty. Right. Uh, up to this point, it was it, you know we 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 see the Battle of the Bulge, but we see the heavy snows and everything, and those snows did come, but they came a few days later in the early stages of the, of the Bulge, the sixteenth, December sixteenth, December seventeenth, etc. It hadn't really been that bad. It was a bit overcast and rainy and things like that. Mm-hmm. At some point, even the sun came out. But by by December eighteenth, the weather started to turn and, and a bit of snow started falling. And so I think what was what was helping the 
the recon troop defend the town was number one it was open terrain um uh because of the farmlands uh, so right so the like the german infantry without the armor support really couldn't make that advance uh, on the town without being you know being you know torn up um but also because the weather hadn't really turned yet you know the, the, the we were able to see you know they were able to see the soldiers so um by December 18th, the there's been this a string of refugees coming through the town. Um, they know that the, the Germans are advancing. They know that they're, they're, they're not going to be stopped. Um, despite the best efforts, uh, the, the recon troop is forced to pull out of, of Eschweiler. Mm-hmm. And so they, 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 they very quickly put together this convoy. I think it was like six vehicles. And they head out of town. And there's, again, I mentioned earlier there's, there was one road in and go out the other end of town. It was kind of the same way. Right. And so they were trying to decide which way would be best. Well, uh, uh, a round of, you know, uh, a volley of artillery convinced them, well, we only have one way. Let's head south. <laughs> right. And, and, and their orders were to head south anyway mm-hmm. to um, try to reinforce the withdrawal of the headquarters division from Viltz, which was, again, four miles away. Mm-hmm. So. They're ordered to head south, and they do. And they and and the road is 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 a bit winding, and it's open, and it's muddy, and again, there's the snow starting to fall, and it's, you know, it's it's kind of treacherous. Um, but they make it, and they they go about about a mile down the road, and they take a, a turn into the, onto the uh, in the road where it's sort of lined with trees on either side. Mm-hmm. And as they as they get into uh, that that turn, and they start heading down that that little uh, I call it almost like an alleyway. Right. Um, they drive basically into the spearhead of the German advance in that sector. And, oh. and it's like they're, they, they have nowhere to go. They're ambushed. They, 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 they you know, pull to the side of the road. Right. The Germans who are coming up the, from, from the, from the ridge open fire. And these guys, you know, they tumble out of their vehicles. I mean, it, it happened so quickly. Most of the guys, you know, dove for cover, forgetting their weapons. I mean, sure. their, their, their weapons were still in, in the Jeeps and in the, and in their transport vehicles. And so they're, they're they're basically pinned down because the only uh, they couldn't back up because one you know the Germans uh, disabled their the, the last vehicle um, they couldn't go forward because there was a tank in the middle of the road right. and the the Germans uh, on the left were were advancing up the hill and on the right the the uh, the recon troop would have had to run uphill. Uh, over some open terrain before hitting the cover of woods, which would expose them to enemy fire. So they were literally pinned down, right. nowhere to go, nowhere to run. And and really, at this point, it's either death or capture. That's it. Mm-hmm. There's, there is no, there were no options. Right. Until George jumped up and said, "I, you know, I can't. This, this, this can't happen." And he something. jumps up. Yeah. And and in the command jeep, which is where he was, there was a fifty caliber machine gun mounted in the jeep. He jumps up, and, and again, the, the Germans are firing. I mean, they're they're they're, right. they're, they're, they're in the middle of firefight. He jumps up, you know, pulls the action, and just starts pumping machine gun fire into the woods where the Germans are are, are, are shooting from to try to like lay down enough suppressing fire Man. to let everybody else escape. And so he, as he's doing this, he's yelling to these guys, go, go, go. Right. And, and they do, they, they, they make a run for it and they start, they start heading out. And even, even though they're running, they can still hear the bullets flying overhead right. um, from the Germans who are trying to get shots off. Um, and just then the, the machine gun jams. Oh, George is like, you know, he's trying to clear it out, and, he, and bullets are hit, are hissing all around him. Right. Uh, and and there's this and, and there's one soldier, you know, crawling up this this culvert, and he and he you know rears up and tries, you know, opens fire, and 
his uh, uh, the one of the, the guys in the troops sees this and returns fire and, and basically strikes this German and kind of knocks him down, uh, buying George enough time to clear the jam, which he does, and he you know and he reloads it and he re-racks the action and he starts firing again and he, and he basically tells everybody you know you know go make a run for it get out of here and can and, I and just they, can I just say real quick I, I just have yeah. to be honest with you and say one there's a part of me that's tempted to stop the interview now just to drive people crazy because <laughs> when I got to this part of the book I literally my wife we were sitting in the living room I put the book down went oh my god oh my god the gun's jammed and she's like what are you talking about <laughs> so I'm like I was just so tense and then I okay okay I can read this so anyway I just had to say I just had to share that with mom with you because I was on it was like a horror movie or whatever except for it's true and I'm on right. pins and needles at this point well, may, well maybe that is a good point for us to, <laughs> to stop it we might get um, hate mail we might get hate we mail, might if get we hate mail. <laughs> well, so George you know he's he's you know he's in the jeep he clears the, the breach right. um, uh, reloads it racks the action and he's firing and tells these guys make a run for it, whatever they, and he starts again, laying down, suppressing fire and he's doing this as much as he can. And then, um, a, another volley of bullets comes his way and he's struck mm. and he, and he gets knocked down and, um, and you know, some of the guys see this happen, but of course they can't do anything about it and they all take off. What's what an interesting side note here is that of all the soldiers that made a run for it that day, Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, and, and I'm, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it was about a, uh, a dozen actually make it back to the allied lines. Uh. The, the rest are captured and, uh, sent to POW camps. But interestingly, they all survived the war. Wow. So, right. you know, if we, if we look at it, it was George's actions that day that allowed, that, yes. That basically, there are families in existence today that, that you know that owe their existence to the to the actions of George Mercantile that one day because all these guys survived. They survived the war. They went home. They raised families. And mm-hmm. I, you know, had he not done that, I don't know if that would have been the case. I mean, yeah. there's no no way for us to know, but it wouldn't know the case. So, um, and then of course the snows come. The snows of the bulge come, and it and it was the worst winter in in that region in like fifty years, and so what happens is, is that it, you know they don't nobody knows what happens to George. The people in the recon troop don't know. His mm-hmm. parents don't know. He's 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 listed as mix, missing in action. Nobody knows what happens to him until March right. of of nineteen forty five. The snows are beginning to melt, and it's actually uh, um, some townspeople that discover his body. And they see, and they see what what calls their attention is that there's a girl. She's walking up the road uh, to to the town, and she finds these photographs on uh, you know in, in on the side of the road, and and she recognizes them because George had shown them to her. Mm-hmm. He showed them to everybody because he was you know sharing with his his family photos. Right. And she looks up, and just off in the distance, she sees a helmet on a on a crudely constructed you know stone grave. And she puts two and two together in her head, and they and runs up to the to the priest and tells the priest what she sees. And of course, the priest comes down, and and um, that you know while they were in Eschweiler, um, one of the care packages that George had received was a Christmas present from his mother, and his mother had made him this this purple sweater. Oh. This bright purple sweater right. that he wore under his army uniform, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the official dress, right. you know, the old. So he wore it under, and uh, 
And when the priest discovers the body, that's basically how he's positively identified is by that purple sweat. Right. Um, so they identify the body and they, the townspeople come and they, and they, they, they disinter George and they bring him to the town cemetery, which is across from the church and they bury him in the town cemetery. And it's a, you know, it's a great honor for them to do for, you know, for, for, to, to, for this to happen. And they give, they, they place him in a, in a, in a, in a place where he overlooks the fields where he had spent a lot of his time while he was there. And then the priest writes home to his parents. And that's when his parents discover that, right. that George, George had died. Um, but the priest also tells him, uh, tells them of what a great person their son was, mm-hmm. how much he meant to the town, uh, how much the priest himself uh, was was taken by George, and and that they considered each other brothers, you know, because they had that kind of a, a relationship that mm-hmm. had developed in the months they're there. They had so many things in common. And the parents, though devastated and heartbroken, again, this was their only child. This yes. was their only son, only child. They're devastated. And so um, even so, they 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 wanted to do something to show their appreciation for the town that embraced their son. So they offered to help uh, the funding of the rebuilding of the church. Mm. And so, you know, they, they contact you know, architects and they get, you know, they get people in. This is after the war, despite the whole Marshall plan. Right. They're like, no, 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 we're, we're going to, we're we going to rebuild. This. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much. We got this. <laughs> and they, and they fund the rebuilding of the church. And it was the, the priest, Father Bodson, who sort of was directing all this. And they rebuilt it basically stone by stone, brick by brick, exactly how it had been. They had to get a new organ and they had to get new stained glass windows, which he you know, commissioned the designing of. And they even commissioned the, 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 um, the painting, the, re, the hand painting of the mural behind the altar. And the, and the, and the mural shows... Uh, Jesus feeding the masses with the help of an apostle, and the apostle is dressed in army uniform and bears the likeness of George Mergenthaler, and that's what you see when you walk in the church to this yes. day, and it grabs your heart. It, it does. Just, oh my God. Yeah, because because when I got to that part, I you know you start flipping through the book. Okay, I I know the photos in here. I got to see it. And you're right. It was absolutely amazing. And no matter your religious beliefs or whatever, I mean, it seems to embody. It seems to capture the caring that George was about, certainly in that village and probably his entire life. But that was the most beautiful tribute I, I think I've ever seen to anyone. Yeah, I have to agree. It's, it's, it's stunning. And as I say, it's the only church in the world, as far as anyone knows, yeah. dedicated to a single American soldier. And it's, and that's George Lincoln. Yeah. So this is an incredible story. And yes, listeners, we have left things out that you'll find out in the book. It's definitely worth it. The book, I think, Believe Merg, comes out on April 1st, but you can order it now. But Mr. Lyon, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for sharing the story, even though you've had it with you for 20 years. I'm finally, I'm glad you finally got around to it. The story is Merg, the true story of one World War II soldier's selfless act of valor that one town never forgot. Mr. Lyon, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.